Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. Today we're going to be looking at quite a few verses from chapter 2, verse 42, all the way to chapter 3, about verse 11. Now, I'm just going to back up to verse 14, briefly, at least in, in summary, verse 14 through to 36, because during these verses, Peter has just preached the sermon of his life. And it's the very first sermon Peter referred to the resurrection of Christ, remember, last week. He quotes not just the psalmist or the poet or the politician, but the prophet David. Two times, one from Psalm 16 and then the second time from Psalm 110. And on that basis, clearly proves beyond any reasonable doubt that Jesus of Nazareth is both Lord and Christ. He is a member of the Godhead as well as being the anointed Savior of the world. Verse 37 says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. The word picture is a very stark one. It it was as if or it felt like a short sword was placed on the breast, left-hand side of the chest, and thrust into the heart, piercing flesh and severing blood vessels. This is how Luke describes the experience of those who were listening. Obviously, it wasn't literal. But can you imagine... Thank the Lord that last week some of us were moved in this fashion. Cut to the heart. Where the Lord gets to the real root of our being and affects us to that particular point where we realize I'm in a dire strait. Some spoke to me about the effect that God's word had and is having on them and sometimes we say that it's one thing that we actually go through a particular book but the question has to be asked is that book or is God's word like a sword going through you going through me how do you feel when exposed to God's word do you feel moved enough to say so to respond Maybe to even change. Well, these were, verse 37b says, in response to Peter's message, they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Peter continued to urge, to challenge and to exhort them. 
evidently he said much more than we see recorded in verse 14 to 36. It would have been a very short sermon if he had. And verse 41 says, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Wow. Talk about a harvest. Not a revival, because you can only revive something that was already alive, right? But these individuals were dead, spiritually speaking, slain by their trespasses and sins, according to Ephesians 2. Unsaved people are not revived, they're regenerated. They're born or born again. They all had a physical birth, that's why they were standing there, otherwise they wouldn't exist. They had a natural birth, they were born physically, but now they needed to, to be born spiritually. Like Nicodemus in John chapter 3, right? What a response. 3,000 people born again. What a great start to the church. Before Peter preached, there were 120. Now, they are approximately 3,120. Now, what on earth do you do with a collective, <laughs> a community this large? I mean, think about it. How did they get them all baptized? Well, the apostles, it could seem, are under pressure. I know a little bit like how that feels, <laughs> especially today. But notice, not pressure to be like these new believers, but for these new believers to be like the disciples. Verse 41, and that day about 3,000 souls were, look, added to them. The 120 were not added to the 3,000, but the 3,000 were added to the 120. The 3,000 were absorbed or assimilated or incorporated. They were integrated into the church. The smaller group would not be conformed to the larger but this new larger group were going to be conformed to the gospel that conformed this small yet powerful group. And look at the four things that hallmark that change as we begin to look at our text. Acts chapter 2 verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. One, the apostles' doctrine. Two, fellowship. Three, the breaking of bread. Four, prayers. First of all, the apostles' doctrine or the teaching of the apostles. Now, in this is a twofold principle. The teaching of the apostles, but also obedience to it. These new disciples didn't just expose themselves to good teaching which I'm sure it was. It must have been phenomenal to sit down at the feet of Peter and James and John and the rest of the disciples. No, they didn't just come and sit down and enjoy it and think, yeah, that was heavy. Uh -uh, I never knew the Old Testament prophecy of David meant that in Psalm 16 or Psalm 110. They may have said after listening to Peter last week, like we did. 
No, they didn't just get excited, although they probably did get excited, as we ought to also get excited, but they also obeyed it. Like it says in James, not just to be hearers of the word, but also doers of the word. What is it going to say? Not deceiving ourselves. We ought to have the same attitude. They persevered in or they adhered to the apostles' teaching. They received it, they retained it, and they acted on its principles. How unusual it must have been now to submit to these new leaders and not to the scribes and the Pharisees. For these Jews, nothing was ever going to be the same. Okay, secondly, fellowship. Association for religious and spiritual purposes. The word fellowship or koinonia is often rendered communion. Communion. It properly denotes having things in common or participation or society or friendship. You know, in Ephesians it says, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them, for it is a shame to even speak of the things which are done of them in secret. Have no fellowship. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't go to work and you don't mingle in the office, making a cup of coffee. Oh, you're not a believer, so... You don't say this out loud, right? You say this in your mind. Oh. No, of course not. But... Although you may not get on a deeper level in terms of your relationship with that individual, you know what I'm saying? You're courteous. You know what I'm saying? If anything, we need to be extra mindful of the way we relate to those who do not know the Lord. Albeit, they, them being in the kingdom of darkness and, and we being in the kingdom of light, we need to do whatever we can to build a bridge in order that they might make that transition. But it's talking about getting on a level with those who are not of us. Those who don't have anything in common with us. And the question has to be asked, do we spend more quality time with those who are outside of the covenant of grace? Or do we spend more time with those who are within that covenant? Do we spend more time with unbelievers or even exposing ourselves to that which is of unbelievers? Because you don't have to spend time with an individual or be up close and personal to an individual. All you have to do is own a TV, right? Worse if you've got Sky. And I mean, you've got hundreds of thousands of millions of people that you now have opportunity to have fellowship with, to have communion with. And on the flip side, how much time do we spend with those that we genuinely have communion with? You know, like Pastor Ephraim said a few weeks ago, character is never constructed in a vacuum. You know what I mean? And um, we're going to come on in a little moment to 
just the way the Lord has just cleverly and masterfully organized it in such a way that iron will come up against iron and rather than just causing sparks and injury, iron begins to shape iron. Iron begins to sharpen iron. And that which was just a lump of old metal, eventually after coming in collision with <laughs> other objects of like manner, ends up be becoming a, a useful tool. Fellowship. All Christians have the same hope of heaven. All Christians have the same joys, the same hatred of sin, the same enemies to contend with. You know, I used to be a DJ before I became a Christian. And when I, when I got saved, it wasn't long before I realized that I had to part company with the number one love in my life. Music had a, a hold on me and it had a way with me that can only be described as a man with a relationship with a woman. I mean, I would do anything <laughs> for music. And as I said, it wasn't long before I became a believer that the Lord helped me to realize that that could no longer continue to be number one on my top ten list. It could be on the list, but it needed to have its place. And he needed to replace that number one spot. And, you know, for years, I say for years, within months of becoming a Christian, I got rid of my records, got rid of all my music. Even to the point where my wife was my girlfriend, Helen, at the time. Helen was like, Robert, I know you're getting serious about this Christianity and that, but you're getting rid of your records. See, she knew how much it meant to me. And that was really after her having an amazing transformation. I mean, I could have turned around and said to her, but Helen, I mean, come on now. You stop smoking. You stop blazing. You stop drinking. You stop swearing. Come on now. Don't you think you're getting a bit too far with this thing? We were both going through a revolution. But to her, it was like, I've never seen nothing like this. This either is real or it's not going to last for very long. Thank the Lord. He has kept me by his grace for nearly 20 years now. And I'm sure he's also kept you. But the reason I share that story is because just the other day, I heard a song. I mean, obviously being a DJ, a, you know a lot of songs, right? You don't even have to be a DJ to know a lot of songs, right? But, and there was this one particular song that I heard again. And I was amazed at just how quickly it was able to grab my attention. I begin to draw me close. And, and, then, and, and, and it was only after having a brief experience with this particular... This sounds crazy. If, you don't know, if you're not into music, I know you're thinking, what is he talking about? But this song began to lure me in ways that, you know what I'm saying, I could only suspect is similar to that which is your greatest temptation. I don't know what it is for you. You know what I mean? But you know you can't get too close to that one. Like Joseph, if you get in close proximity to that type of temptation, you know that there's only one option, and it's to flee. You don't stand and try and fight that sin, that temptation. You flee, you duck. You know what I mean? And that's what it was. I heard this song, and I was like, it was like, you've seen a jungle book. 
Where the, the snake, I can't remember his name. Trust in me. Just in me. Close your eyes. And you see Malgi begin to close his eyes. And get, you see his eyes start spinning, right? He gets hypnotized. And I was like, Lord. I was like, one, Lord, evidently you delivered me from that because I was not strong enough to do it for myself. And two, I'm just asking that you continue to keep me. You know what I mean? Because of the power of that thing. And I'm talking about having, I could have sat and had fellowship with the producer, the songwriter, and the singer of that song, and got like Anita Baker caught up, you see, it's all coming back now, get caught up, get caught up in the rapture. So the long and short of it is, during the week, if you laid out your week in, in, in hours as opposed to days, how many of those hours do you spend in that type of company? Is the question. Because really, what we need to do is we need to get together with those who are more like-minded than those who evidently are not. And it means getting together. Verse 46 of this chapter seems to indicate that they got together, that is those who had things in common, on a daily basis. Oh, how did I get to this? It was a bit, a bit early, but I suspect those of you who aren't listening were reading. Now we're going to read Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. And let us consider one another. That's where it starts, you know. Very often when it comes to fellowship... We say, oh man, it's seven o'clock and I'm feeling tired. I've had a long day today. Ain't really feeling like going prayer meeting. Ain't really feel like going Bible study. You see, in that moment, who are we considering? We're not considering the other person. And very often we see fellowship as, well, if I don't go, I know I'm not, not going to get blessed, but I can do without not getting blessed tonight. Hey, I think I'd rather be blessed by just kind of putting up my face. And it's good to rest sometimes. You know what I'm saying? But if that becomes a pattern, what we're doing is we're considering ourselves and not others because when we get together in fellowship, and I say it all the time, when we get together in fellowship, it's not just you that's receiving. If you see it like that, that's an immature way of seeing fellowship. You know what I mean? But we're also contributing. I mean, it's, it makes sense. If I'm going to go and not be benefited because I'm not going... The reason I'm not benefited is, I'm, is because I'm not there for others to pour into my life. Well, if I'm, if I'm not there for them to pour into my life, I'm not there to pour into their lives. It's too, it's a, fellowship is beneficial for both parties. And a mature perspective is considering the other individual, considering one another in order to stir up love and good works. Look, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. Goodness, it's the Bible's so up to date, right? But exhorting one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching. So that means our fellowship, our communion, the, the strength of our community ought to get greater and stronger as we see the day approaching. 
as the days progress toward the coming of the Lord. Fellowship. The third thing is the breaking of bread. And I've got to hurry now. At mealtimes, the Jews used thin loaves. And therefore, they broke them rather than cut them. So by breaking of bread, they meant spending time together around meals and the banquets which they used to keep. Breaking of bread was that act which, which preceded a feast or a meal and which was performed by the master of the house, like Jesus at the time when they were in the upper room, when he would pronounce the blessing, what we would call grace, before the meal, right? And when they kept their love feasts, they ate food, but then also closely related to that was the Lord's Supper. Now, within our culture, things are, are quite different, and the times are different. And so in order for us to make sure and maintain that we do that which is vital, which is to remember the Lord's death until he comes, we try to at least do it here. Just in case with our crazy busy lifestyles, we go a whole month without having communion and remembering, taking a moment just to be still and quiet and remembering the Lord's death until he comes, right? Now, let it not stop there. And I'm speaking to the person on this side of the podium, pulpit, as much as I'm speaking to those on the other side. See, when we get together, the food's interesting, our conversation's interesting, even if, it's, even if it surrounds the Bible in terms of its themes and topics. But how wonderful it would be when we get together to eat food and link up We'd be like, hey, look, just before we eat, let's just break bread. And remember the Lord's death until he comes. Um, I think that's a challenge to, to all of us. And as I said, they did this on a regular basis, much more regularly than once a month. So may the Lord help us to respond to that which is instructed in the apostles' doctrine. And this is the point remembering the Lord's death until he comes. We need to keep that constantly in our focus because it constantly keeps us humble. If you're a genuine believer, you'd be like, I can't approach the Lord's table without confessing my sin and my guilt. A shameful way I might have spoken to my wife or barked at the kids or totally ignored that brother or that sister that I don't like. You know what I mean? <laughs> You continue to keep coming before the Lord on a regular basis, then you end up keeping real short accounts. The Lord will be like, okay, I need to talk to you about ah. Oh. You're confronted with it regularly, right? Breaking of bread. And fourthly, prayers. Can I just mention before we look at Ephesians 6? Look at that. I said before we look at it, and then I'll turn to it. Before we look at Ephesians 6, can I just mention a little bit about devotions? Um, on Thursday night, we have a, a men's discipleship group that meets fortnightly. And we were talking about the importance of having a prayer slash devotional life. I, 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 we have devotions at home with the kids and my wife. We try to do it regularly. We are inconsistent in doing it regularly, but we try and do it when we can. And 
we were talking about it and my son said, you know, when it comes to, when I asked him the same question about what's your prayer life like, what's your devotional life like? Not, this ain't fellowship communion with the body. This is now fellowship communion with the Lord on a personal level. And he was like, well, dad, you know, I have no problems reading. But boy, the prayer aspect ain't so great. You know what I mean? And then my daughter was the opposite. She says, I pray all day. I was like, huh? <laughs> and she was like, well, kind of constantly throughout the day, little prayers here and there. And okay, okay. I said, but then she said, boy, my reading life ain't so great. And we talked about the, the need for a coming together of those two. If you find that, you know what I'm saying, you, you can pray like a warrior, prayer warrior, but you struggle to get in the word. That's not healthy, because I wonder really what you're going to pray. You know what I mean? It might end up being, oh, Lord, bless me, bless Uncle Tom, bless that person, bless my neighbors, and help me to do this, help me to... Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but there's so much more we need to be praying about. And our prayers are informed by God's word. You know what I'm saying? Our prayers are informed. And it's really, in a simple sense, prayer is communication, Right? Communication with God, and therefore, if all we're doing is talking, 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 then we're not really doing much listening. But when you, when you spend time reading, then if you like, God is speaking to you, right, through his word. And so if we can get a balance and a combination of the two, then that's going to be really healthy. I find that I struggle to pray for any long period of time if I don't have an open Bible before me. In prayer meetings, you'll see different people kind of sitting there, unorthodox because they may not necessarily be closing their eyes you know what i mean there with their bible open as different individuals are praying are flicking through their their bible because in that moment maybe the lord is saying something oh i can't rem i can't remember where that verse is let me have a quick oh yeah that's that verse and whoa and they may even end up praying out on the basis of that verse i find that reading my bible as i pray stimulates and encourages my prayer and i i would encourage you to also do the same what is your prayer slash devotional life like and again it doesn't have to be hours and hours and hours it's not so much quantity it's more quality right it's better that you pray for five minutes out of the abundance of your heart being moved by the spirit according to that which you've seen in his word than just kind of praying rope prayers I mean, Hail Mary, Mother of Grace, or Our Father. I was watching a film the other night, and this guy went to confession, and he, and he was encouraged, in order to be absolved of his sins at confession, to pray ten Our Fathers and five Hail Marys. That, 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 that is in, that's in stark contrast to what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 6. He says, don't pray that way. That's not, that's not talking to God. What's, what's that? And you know, I was a Catholic for so many years. Never realized that until the Lord opened my eyes. But prayer. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 18. <clears throat> says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. Being watchful to this end. And with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Colossians chapter 4 verse 2 says, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. I mean, you know, sometimes authorized King James and even new King James 
can be a bit difficult. So here's the bicycle, the bicycle, the Bible in basic English. Well, you try and say that quickly. It says, give yourselves to prayer at all times, keeping watch with praise. I think that was a nice rendering. Prayer, public and private. Here we have a wonderful encapsulated snapshot of the basic Christian life. If you've just become a Christian, you've just freshly repented of your sinful lifestyle, you've been baptized or are about to be baptized, and you may be wondering, on what? And where ought I to spend my time? I'm a new Christian, what do I do? Well, take a closer look, I would encourage you, at these four points. Putting these principles into practice will create a very stable and solid foundation in your Christian life, new believer. When it comes to temptation, you will struggle less. When it comes to finding direction, you will navigate more easily. When it comes to finding strength, wisdom, patience, and faithfulness, you will be better positioned by virtue of implementing these principles. I can confess to having experienced this in my own life. Benefiting when I practiced these principles, suffering when I neglected them. How important is the apostles' doctrine? How important, if you like, is God's word to you? How much time a week do you give to fellowship? Do you regularly partake of the Lord's Supper? And not only partake, how about leading? How about leading in communion like we have the brothers do? That's why you see different brothers doing this on a regular basis. It's not because we're trying to make pastors or teachers out of them. Hopefully that will come if some of them are called to that. But we're trying to encourage our brothers, our men in the fellowship to be responsible enough to be able to say, okay, we're going to come together now around God's word and we're going to have communion. So not just taking it, fellas, but how about leading it? Leading it in your home? Leading it in maybe a little prayer or Bible study group at work? But then also maybe leading us as a community, as a fellowship? being able to lead us in taking communion. And then fourthly, are you dedicated to the Lord in prayer? Verse 43, then fear came upon every soul. Wow. That's what happens when God's people begin to do what God desires. Notice this fear or reverential awe permeated the whole city. Believers and unbelievers alike. And it says, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Remember from last week, wonders. Wonders leave you wondering. Astounded and astonished. Signs, on the other hand, point to something. Most importantly, to attest to the validity of the message preached. 
and to the to the and to the point where these signs actually point to whom the preaching pointed which is Jesus of Nazareth again both Lord and Christ that's the purpose of the miracles wonders and signs verse 44 now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need i mean you knew that these people were saved john chapter 13 verse 34 says a new commandment i give to you said jesus that you what that you love one another as i have loved you that you also love one another by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another they were together united of the same community engaged in the same thing even to the point where they began selling possessions and goods selling houses and lands literally we'll see a classic example of this in chapter 4 very challenging behavior so much for us all to learn and apply and check it with no buildings or basilicas no cathedrals or church buildings verse 46 so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart we see the attitude that accompanied this new way of life praising god verse 47 and having favor with all the people and the lord added to the church daily those who were being saved the lord will add to the church when it functions in the way that he outlined we don't have to hype it you don't have to beat people with a stick you don't have to drive the sheep <laughs> pastors are supposed to pastor what means shepherd right It's supposed to lead the sheep not drive them and i heard was it pastor chuck pastor pat said healthy sheep reproduce we don't have to force it what we have to do is feed the sheep right feed the sheep by the grace of god take them to green pastures and beside the still waters in order that they might get nourished in order that you might get nourished in order that we might get nourished that's one of the reasons why you won't always hear me teaching cuz as much as i'm a shepherd i'm a sheep and i need to be fed so i thank the lord for the seasons when i'm not teaching and i have the, the the ability and the opportunity to be a good sheep and sit down and eat thank the lord for that and when we when we healthy sheep will rep- reproduce or god will through us bring about i think all that most churches really desire right i mean which church desires to be small and not grow and not expand and not so that we can be mega massive mega churches like 30,000 people in one building you know what i'm saying and i'm not hating on that but it's hard to be a community in a really really massive sense and 
even we see it here, don't we? With 3,000 people getting saved. I mean, they're met in houses. I mean, evidently, you weren't going to get 3,000 people in one house. So that means they must have been meeting in different places, different times, getting together. Wow. And God continued to add to that group. May the Lord help us to continue to follow him in order that he may continue to add to us. I mean, and if, even if we don't see it, we can trust that somewhere, somehow, the Lord is adding to the church. Because the church is a, it's a big entity, right? <clears throat> right. Now we turn to chapter 3, which incidentally will conclude with another great sermon by Peter, kind of similar to what we saw last week. But chapter 3 begins, not concludes, but begins with a miracle that continues to highlight the sustained work of Christ through the apostles by the power of the Spirit. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. It's got a slide if you have a look at. The temple. Peter and John, they were both fishermen, right? One was older, one was younger. Both were very close friends, very often found together. Yet, very different characters, right? Notice, more often than not, we see the disciples and the apostles doing ministry, not on their own, but together. Very often, two by two. No Lone Ranger business. We see a plurality, a sharing of ministry throughout this book particularly. And we find that the ministry is predominantly male. Not exclusively, but mostly. Here we see Peter and John both practicing the fourth principle that we just looked at, which is prayer, right? That's where they're going. Going up to worship according to the new covenant outline as opposed to the old covenant outline, even though they're, they're still going to the temple. The new covenant, the new agreement, the new testament, because Jesus now was the ultimate sacrifice for sins. He was the Lamb of God, and no animal offering would suffice, Hebrews chapter 10 says. Hebrews 10 Verse 1, for the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, shadow, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then, would they not have ceased to be offered? The argument is if you made an offering and it was perfect, then you wouldn't have to do it again. But they had to consistently, constantly continue to make these offerings for the worshippers, once purified, if it was valid, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But it was valid, but only temporarily. Verse 3, but in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible, which is the point, that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Remember, these are all Jews. 
They're not Gentiles. There ain't no Gentiles yet. We don't see a Gentile get converted until Acts chapter 10. I mean, and even here, the writer wasn't, wasn't even saved. That's Luke, right? And Luke is a Gentile. But up until this point, where we are in Acts chapter 3, no Gentiles in the churches yet. The temple. Going up, literally, to the temple. And you've got to remember, this is, this, is, this picture isn't. This picture is a picture of the third temple. The temple that the disciples were approaching was the second temple, or Herod's temple, right? But, generally in the same place, going up, literally, to the temple, because it was on a hill-type mini-mountain, at what time? At the ninth hour, 3 p.m., approximately the time of the evening sacrifice. And so I suppose this particular moment is about 2.45. That is if Peter and John, I'm not saying we're good with their timekeeping. Verse 2, and a, <laughs> and a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who enter the temple. Now, this man was probably a paraplegic, according to verse 7. Here's a slide by a man called Gustav Doré. And it's the man at the gate, beautiful, or a rendition. As you can see, this is just an artist's impression of what this scene may have looked like. We cannot be sure, but this entrance, called the beautiful gate, was probably also known as the main gate or the Corinthian gate. And it was ornately decorated with Corinthian brass. This man was probably a regular visitor to this gate of the temple. Not unlike today, hoping to catch the attention of some kind individual on their way to worship. I mean, it was, he was strategically positioned, right? He was probably also quite well informed, being an unofficial doorman this poor man quite possibly had known about Jesus and maybe even saw Jesus and his disciples remember Jesus and the 12 had frequently visited the temple actually not long before this time we don't know exactly when this particular event took place but let's say at least six weeks ago or so Jesus was at the same temple in Matthew 24 with his disciples Remember when they said, oh, look at the temple, Lord. And he went, hmm, not one of these stones will remain. Every single one of them will be torn down. And they were like, what? And then Matthew 24, in conjunction with Luke 21 and Mark chapter 13, all eschatological in their nature, talking about the last days. And Jesus begins to lay it out for them, right, in Matthew 24. So who knows? Maybe this man at this gate had seen them at some point in time as they had come into the temple. This sick man who was approximately my age, we'll see that from the next chapter, probably in his, actually in his 40s. Um, verse 3 says, Who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms or a gift because he was begging. You know, just a point. You know, sometimes a person can get so low 
and so frustrated by their circumstances that it causes them to resort to extreme measures. I was, I was at work just in, in a week, and I was up by, just off Rathbone Place, around the corner from Tottenham Court Road Station on Oxford Street there. And I saw this man in a grey suit, and initially I thought, wait a minute, that don't make sense. This guy had a grey suit on, yet he was upside down with his feet dangling out of a bin. And I was like, wow, Lord, that's deep. I mean, you know, sometimes you're walking down the street, you take some money out, and you might drop like a 2p or a 1p piece, and you just be like, you just leave it. Not because you don't want it, but you just, you don't want the embarrassment of someone seeing you bending out to pick up 1p, right? I mean, how does that compare to someone leaning into a dustbin to get food? And this is London. And I thought, Lord, wow. You know, a person must have to get really, really low to the point where they would do that without even considering what it looks like. Um, some people are caused to resort to extreme measures. We have to show mercy in those instances and try to be understanding and trust that the Lord will work on that individual's behalf. Little did this man know, and I suspect this is how the disciples felt about this man. Little did this man know that his time had come and today was going to be his day. I'd like to spend time really kind of just encouraging those of you that you may not necessarily be paraplegic, but you might be paralyzed financially. I mean, boy, is there anyone that ain't having to take stock of their finances at this particular time. In this climate is, yo, times are getting hard. 600 people applying for one job, I read the other day in the paper. Times are getting hard. And, it's, and it ought not to be a surprise to us because we're living in the last days, right? But you very often feel like, yeah, I know we're living in the last days, but that's, that's coming. And I mean, it's close with the various different things we see going on, but it's, surely it's not here, is it? Well, it may not be, but it may well be. Times are difficult. And you may be, you may be feeling paralyzed for one reason or another. I mean, like, we've got some young people in our congregation who are getting ready to take their GCSEs. <laughs> You know, you talk to them for like weeks and no, I should say years before. Oh, you know, you got your GCSEs coming up in a couple of years. I know that it's fresh in my mind because my daughter's one of them. She's taking her GCSEs in like weeks now. I remember back in the day, we was like, oh, you, you got to you're in year nine. You got to take your options. You got to be really serious and consider what you want to do and blah, 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 blah. Before you, before you spin round, look. And back then it was, yeah, yeah, I know. And yeah, I'm going to do that. And yeah, yeah, revision um, timetable, blah, blah, blah. Now, it's on. And it's not years, and it's not months, it's weeks, which you can break down into days. And I don't know, if you're in that place where everything is now getting on top for one reason or another, whether it's because, you know what I'm saying, you were lazy, or you, you, you know what I'm saying, you, you weren't responsible, or you've been doing all that you can, 
but now all of a sudden you find yourself in a difficult situation. Be encouraged. This man was here for quite some time. But thank the Lord, his time came. And your time will come. May not necessarily be as I prayed at the outset in the way that you would desire. But you have to believe that if, you're, if you belong to the Lord, there's nothing that happens in your life that happens by chance. Nothing is coincidence. It's either we made some bad choices and things are going a bit skew-if, or the Lord has just allowed stuff to come into our life like Job. You know what I mean? But you just have to continue to trust him. And I don't know, this, it seems as if it was a divine appointment for this man. And we get the impression that Peter sensed that the Lord by his spirit was up to something. Verse 4, it says, and fixing his eyes on him, this man, with John, Peter said, look at us. I can imagine these two simple yet evidently anointed men of God were constantly aware of the presence and the power of the spirit, expecting to be used by God. I mean, they just recently had an amazing experience, right, in the upper room. And you can, you can just imagine, they're like, oh, it's like, boy, what's the Lord going to do next? Do you know what I mean? They don't know everything. It's not laid out for them, right? But there's this expectancy, it seems. Now, these men, whether in prayer, which is where they're going, or preaching, which we will see later with Peter, or healing, as we will see in a moment, they have this anticipation. And we have the ability to walk and to live with the same expectation, don't we? Maybe not directly in the same way that they did. Because I don't know, I think that, well, let me read verse 5. So he gave them, that is this man, his attention, expecting to receive something from them. The man was probably expecting to receive some monetary gift, right? Um, We see that particularly based on Peter's next statement. Verse 6, then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. From this, we get the impression that Peter knew that this man was going to be healed. How did he know? Well, I don't know. Would it be unfair to say that the apostles had a confidence that was unusual? And it came by virtue of the direct commission of Jesus to them... I mean, instantaneous, excuse me, instantaneous, complete, utter healing. I think that we as disciples today, we enjoy the opportunity to see God work miracles, even of this magnitude, but again, without a definite guarantee. I mean... Healing is a gift of the Spirit, and it works as the Holy Spirit wills. And I'm saying not necessarily as we will, but as he wills. Will we see this take place? Healings, that is. I believe so. We pray for it, but we cannot expect or demand it. Now, some disagree with that. But I would suggest they find themselves having to manipulate and manufacture. Even using the name of Jesus 
like a magic word. Now, this is not the sense that we get from the text. As if the use of this name guarantees the desired results. Like open sesame or abracadabra. No, using the name of Jesus speaks more about representative authority. Like a policeman knocking on the door. They knock on the door in the name of the law. Now, this policeman, he has authority whether he shouts or he whispers or he writes it on a note and slips it under the door. He has authority. He has authority that's been given to him by someone with greater authority. Well, if Jesus gave the authority, surely then we would see the results, right? I mean, if Jesus gave you and me the sort of power that some say that he has, if you like, like some of the modern day apostles, quote unquote, why would we be having, or why would they be having meetings at Earl's Court and Olympia and the Royal Albert Hall? Surely with this type of authority, they should be going down to guys, to St. Thomas's and to King's College Hospital and clearing out the children's wards and the intensive care units and accidents and emergencies. And this will bring me to another point in a moment. But Peter says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now these are wonderful words. And don't read it in low-key fashion. Like, oh, I'm skint, man. I'm sorry, bruv, I can't really help you. I ain't got no money. It's like I really can't help you in the in the way that you'd like me to. No. Notice he doesn't say, I haven't got any denarii. The man says, I don't have any gold and silver. I mean, it's not that he never had a couple of denarii in his pocket. Or in his pouch, pockets, I don't know. He says, gold and silver, like the most expensive materials, meaning all the financial provision in the world, bruv, couldn't help you. Just like the woman who was healed by Jesus, who had the issue of blood, constant bleeding, remember? She had been to so many doctors and had spent a fortune all to no avail. See, this is an upbeat statement. He says, silver and gold, I don't have. But don't watch that because that's not what you need. You think that's what you need. He says, but that's not what you need. But guess what? I have exactly what you need. As amazing as it may sound, and here it is. Extraordinary, supernatural, physical healing. And notice, it is authorized by he who is the great authority, which is by Jesus. And we see the effect, immediate powerful, life-changing, but a sign pointing somewhere. 
It's not an end in itself. As much as this poor man needs healing, as much as there are individuals who are ill or sick and could benefit from healing, who knows how many times the disciples, the apostles, they, they go to the temple daily. How, who knows how many times they've walked past this man? Who knows how many times Jesus may have walked past this man? In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, at this point, at this moment in time, he determines that you be healed. Therefore, rise up and walk. Peter said, silver and gold I do not have. Wait a minute. This brings me on to another point. Wait a minute. You don't have any silver or gold. Peter, ain't you heard about prosperity? I mean, if anyone should know, you should know. I mean, you've got books in the Bible. You know, I need to get you some Creflo or some Kenneth Copeland CDs, bruv. It's like, wait a minute, Peter. You check it. You just had a service a few days ago where 3,000 people got saved. Surely you must have taken up a few offerings by now. I mean, just by conservative estimates, there should be a couple grand in the bank by now. Plus, you are doing great legitimate miracles. Surely people are giving, are giving you gifts for blessing them. Genuinely. I mean, didn't Dr. Peter and Bishop John take money from out of the offering and have independent use of the church credit card? Purchasing cars and houses and yachts and Rolex watches and expensive Italian suits. Two things about that. How many know that the Roman Catholic Church is one of the wealthiest institutions in the world? They're the richest, smallest state, right? Got their own bank. Banco, Bank of Spirito Sante. Bank of the Holy Spirit. Sit. Listen. I mean, you want to talk about wealth. I mean, which road do you go down that ain't got a, a Catholic church building? Real estate. Oh my goodness. And apparently one day a representative of the Catholic Church once said, and I quote, boy, you know what? With his robes and so on. You know what? We can no longer say silver and gold, we have none. Because we're balling. Right? We can no longer say silver and gold, we have none. And the other person, whoever they were, Responded by saying, yeah, you're right. And neither can we say, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. Mm. It's true. Now, but I'm not going to try and pick on a Catholic church. Because most of what they teach is clearly unbiblical, right? It's easily identifiable as erroneous. But how about those that are more subtle? Or not so subtle? as the case may be. Can I show you a quick video clip? Okay, I'm gonna ask Pastor Peter just take the lights down for me. Mend this collarbone together, bones come together. As many...
as 30 million Americans tune in each month to watch this kind of religious programming. The typical viewer lives in the South or Midwest, has only a high school education, and is usually a woman, often 55 or older. God gave me this truth. He didn't send me the rich, fat cat. No, he certainly didn't. Most followers make between fifteen dollars and $25,000 a year. But while they may be on a tight budget, they're extremely generous. And no one knows that better than televangelist Robert Tilton, when primetime continues. But how can you beat a man who takes in more money than the income, we figure, of Madonna and Michael Jackson combined? As we said before, it takes a lot of money to keep one of these TV ministries on the air. But we have been told that making money and marketing are what this man does best. People said his organization is a state-of-the-art factory for donations, all for the operations and bank accounts of the Robert Tilton Ministry. <laughs> And I'll tell you something else. Those that mess with me, they're messing with the apple of God's eye. This is Robert Tilton. He has the fastest growing ministry on television today. You foul, rotten, sneaking devil. I'm going to beat you up, you devil. I'm going to cut you to pieces in the name of Jesus. Viewers are riveted by his melodrama, his quirky style. I love you. And he parlays all of it into a high-tech church in Dallas and more airtime than almost any other televangelist. I'll say yes, Lord. Tilton takes in so much money, he makes other TV ministers look like amateurs. And I want you to make a $1,000 vow of faith. Oh, I know you probably don't have a $1,000, but vow it. Try to find out how much money Tilton makes, and you discover the ministry is shrouded in secrecy. The pastor has bodyguards. His offices are sealed off with armed security and surveillance cameras. But Primetime obtains some of Tilton's financial documents. These are daily deposits, and based on these, Tilton's followers sent his ministry conservatively $80 million a year, tax-free. Good morning and welcome to Word of Faith Family Church. Tilton's televised service is an expensive multimedia variety hour, but for all his flashy style, Tilton insists he's still a simple preacher who cares about the sickness and suffering of his followers. Bones, go together! Now move it around. Start moving it around. Start thanking God. Who else in severe pain? He also tells followers he'll pray for their miracles, so they should send him money. Today is a miracle day. In this fundraising campaign two months ago, Tilton told followers he was making a pilgrimage to the mountains just for them. Separated myself from the hustle and bustle of the city life, just as Jesus withdrew himself and went to the mountainside to pray. Like Jesus? The Bible says Jesus went to fast and separate himself from worldly things. Pastor Bob flew first class to a posh ski resort in Colorado. Three suitcases for five days. A room with a fireplace. He even brought his own television along while asking followers to send in money. Yes, ma'am. So we decided to take hidden cameras to see what we could learn about Robert Tilton's fundraising. It led us first to the nerve center of his ministry, the company that organizes his direct mail. It's called Response Media. Uh, Bob is, is, uh, is he's far better than anyone Jim Moore is president of Response Media. He handles not only Tilton, but a number of big corporate accounts. We told Moore that we were media consultants for this man, Dallas Minister Ole Anthony. 
We asked him to show us how to start a big money ministry like Tilton's. Give him something free. You know, we want to mail you the latest copy of X and get the name and address. No. New names is the key. Not the new names, just I think new names. We learned that once people give you their names, it's easy to keep them on the hook. You mail them something with a gimmick in it. First of all, when you send an item in it, it gets your attention. That's number one. Tilton sends out an avalanche of things he asks viewers to send back to him. Miracle prayer clause he promises to touch and place upon an altar. Cords he says he'll place on a wall of deliverance. Arrows he'll use to take aim at a sufferer's needs. A tracing, place your hand there and he'll put his hand there too. There's holy water from the River Jordan, miracle anointing oil. Though Moore said some of the items come from that holy place, Taiwan. The letters accompanying the items are written by ghost writers to pressure followers to write back and make donations too. Does it work? People send them in by the truckloads. It's a great marketing scheme. There's a feeling of obligation to send it back, and they do. And you said they're going to send it back, oh, I'll go ahead and put $5. Uh, it just, I'm not sure exactly all the reasons why it works, but I can tell you from years and years of experience, it does. And when the letters arrive, they're processed so the company knows which fundraising appeals you can use to squeeze followers for the most donations. We run them up against demographic information and create a, um, a profile of who their people are. Uh, how many people have cars that are um, new? So it's market research, not God, who can tell Tilton which appeals reach the richest donors, which illnesses create the most dollar opportunities. Someone had a growth. I just saw a growth being healed. And Tilton creates the impression that after he pays for his overhead and all that expensive airtime, the money goes to good works like these, his missions around the world. But we tracked down every charitable contribution of Tilton we could find, and we calculate he spends more in a year on billboards around Dallas than he does on all of these missions combined. And what about this mission, Tilton's orphanage in Haiti? We kept thinking about Bob Jones and how he told us you could just fix yourself up a sign and claim an orphanage. Put your name on there, whatever you want. At the World Harvest Orphanage. Tilton uses three different names for his Haiti orphanages. So when we went to Haiti, we asked the government officials in charge of foreign missions if they'd heard of any of Tilton's orphanages. They said no. So nothing from Robert Tilton here. And Tilton's marketing director made it clear when it comes to money for missions, Tilton is very smart. He's careful not to say what donation goes where, so he can avoid, again, how Jim and Tammy got caught. They could have taken as much money as they wanted to and never gotten in trouble. Yeah. See, that's why. So you advise clients to sort of keep it non-specific? Well, if you can raise it being non-specific, I always recommend that. Uh, it isn't in, in Tilton, does that, but yeah. I mean, he's... Hey, he's never raised money for specific projects. I'll tell you, you never heard a TV preacher asking for money like this before. Robert Tilton, as I knew him, was practicing to become a salesman. That was his concept of success. Was this man who wanted anonymity is just one of several old friends of Robert Tilton who talked to us. He remembers when they were in college, they would use drugs or get drunk and go off to tent revivals as a kind of sport. And we'd be drunk 
and uh, go down front, fall to our knees, uh, speak in tongues. I think that anybody who was there would realize that some people are going to believe anything. And all you have to do is capitalize on that belief. Tilton and his friends started developing parodies, so-called Jesus raps of their own. Oh, dear God, come into this young woman's life here tonight. She has a need to find Christ. Oh, God, in the name of Jesus, we believe in prayer. We believe in miracles. I personally thought I was a lot better at it than he was. Tilton, who never finished college, admits he was a drug user, but says he was saved when some people came to his house and explained Christ. I just changed. I just fell in love with everybody. But he never tells followers how he and his friends talked about running preacher scams and cashing in. We said that when we graduated, that we would buy a good tent, a dynamite sound system, a good amen section, and fly around the country and get rich. We sold everything that we had, bought an old ragged tent and a big old truck and a travel trailer, and we headed out to tell people about this gospel of Jesus. That was 1974 when Tilton started out, and by 1981, he had hit the big time. As I said, this clip um, is quite old, <clears throat> but it mirrors... A lot of what we see happening today and um, I said it's more subtle um, but it's not really that subtle if you have eyes to see verse 7 says and he took him by the right hand and lifted him up and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength so he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging arms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled again with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, as the layman who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. I'd just like to end on this point. It seems like anywhere the disciples go, there's excitement. Anywhere these disciples of Jesus went, there was excitement. The emphasis was now coming off of the physical temple and it was now coming onto the spiritual temple. In First Peter, it talks about a temple that's not made with hands, a house that's built up together, a spiritual house, not, with, not made with literal bricks or stones, but with living stones built up together, make up this new temple, this new spiritual house. And as the people looked at these disciples, they weren't enamored with them. But they, they left enamored with and impressed with the Jesus that they served. 
People walked away not, not talking about how great they were, I suppose in a, in a general sense. Maybe you had the in, different individuals who talked about this great guy, Pete, or this great guy, John. Again, this is something that we'll see later on with Paul. People even beginning to worship him. But the disciples never draw attention to themselves, I mean, and had ministries with their names on them. They were always trying to attract people's attention to Jesus. They were always trying to attract people's attention to the message which ultimately was that which was going to change people's lives. Amen. May God help us to do the same. May that be true of us that we don't try to bring attention to ourselves but that we and whatever we do whether it be normal or paranormal because we believe that both of those are valid. Whether, whether it's normal or it's spectacularly amazing and it leaves people wondering, may they go away with an impression of Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, we realize that we have a great amount of accountability using your name. We realize that every single word that we speak, we're going to have to give an account for. We're going to be called on the carpet about. Therefore, Lord, we ask that you'd help us. Apart from us pointing the finger at others, Lord, help us to look at ourselves. Help us to take the beam out of our own eye. And Lord, we, on that day when we stand before you, Lord, are concerned that we haven't misrepresented you. We're concerned that we didn't draw attention to ourselves rather than encouraging people to look to Christ. And Father, we, we fear. If we were to see a miracle, Lord, may we respond in trembling and fearfully because we see you working. And that, that would cause us to be humble that, that would cause us to take the lower place, that we would be even more concerned because you've given something so valuable. Lord, help us to be men and women, Lord, who represent you righteously. And Lord, I pray that wherever we go, whenever we go, that we would have an, have an anticipation of you working by your spirit, in and through our lives, Lord, in order that others may be touched and benefited, healed, Lord, physically, but Lord, more importantly, healed spiritually. And we know that if, if, all, if that takes place, Lord, ultimately it's in order that they might be able to hear the message that can ultimately bring transformation to the soul. Because what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his soul? So help us, I pray. Help us in our focus and um, continue to help us as we go through the book of Acts, Lord. Looking at all that you began to do and teach, but then continued also to do through them and then ultimately through our lives. For Jesus' sake, we pray, Lord.